The sadness and brokenness of our lives and world is all too real. Sometimes it feels as if every day something new falls apart. What are we supposed to do? God's grand plan from the beginning of creation is for his beloved children to bless the world, to be present as he is present, to be faithful as he is faithful to his promises, committed not to ourselves, but to a world worth saving. encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter uh, 6 as well as uh, Genesis chapter 1. Last week we began a, a series noting that God creates out of the overflow of himself. That at the beginning, God creates order out of disorder and chaos, bringing light out of darkness, out of himself, blessing creation, blessing the world out of the overflow. And that separation is not the last result. That when God separates light from dark, when God separates uh, water above from water below, and when God separates land from uh, water, he does not end there. That the purpose and plan of God is to fill what is separated with life. And that is extremely important this morning as we look together at the story of Noah and the flood. But before we uh, read, let's pray. Gracious God, as we open your word this morning, again, uh, with a familiar story, maybe not a familiar text, but a familiar Bible story, we pray that you would open our hearts to be aware of what you are saying. God, we know that your word is true and that what you say is true. And so tune us in to what you are saying through the power of your spirit for the sake of your son. Amen. Many of us in high school or college read the novel, The Lord of the Flies, William Golding's The Lord of the Flies, and we followed along as a young group of boys is shipwrecked on an island, and we watch as they devolve. And of course, Golding writes this after World War II, noting that society, when left to itself, will decline, will always head in the wrong direction. And what's interesting about William Golding's The Lord of the Flies is that he actually wrote this in response to another book called Coral Island. In that book, there is also a group of boys who are stranded on an island. And instead of devolving into chaos and disorder, we watch as these young boys build a society. They, they get along, they uh, build homes, they have fun together, they have a jolly old time. And Golding, of course, is not just critiquing society, he's also critiquing this idea now, in many ways, we don't exactly know how that would play out, right? But we do have some glimpses in our own lives and in our own experience that tell us what happens when we feel pressure, 
For example, many of us this past week went out to eat or we went and got coffee. And if we go through the doors and there is no wait and the hostess is gracious and we are seated very quickly, we go to our seats, we are comfortable, the table is clean, there's no sign of damage, we're given our menus, a real menu, we order our food, our wait staff is attentive, when we need refills, they bring them, our food comes out hot, it is correct. When it is time to leave, the wait staff gently slides the bill in there, writes a little smiley face in their name on the ticket, and we go home fed, satisfied, because things went well. And it was, right, we, we, we tip well, we're gracious back, we leave with a smile on our face, and maybe even on the way home, we let someone cut in front of us. Very different, however, when our experience is that when we walk in the restaurant, it's an hour wait. And this is like the fourth restaurant we've gone to, so we know that everywhere else has a longer wait. And when we get up and we talk to the hostess, they greet us with rudeness. And what goes through our mind is not, wow, this person must be having a hard time. What goes through our mind is, well, I'll go somewhere else then. And then we go sit, and the table hasn't been cleaned yet, and there are straw wrappers in the booth, there are crumbs on the seats, and there are grease marks, and in fact, when we sit down and then we scoot over, we see that we have sat in ketchup. And when the server comes over, it is clear that they are exasperated and they don't have a real menu. You have to use the QR code on your phone to look at it. And of course, you can't quite see it. And this is super annoying. And when we finally get served our drinks, we've waited a long time, right? And our food comes out cold and it comes out a bit wrong. And then we have to wait for the check and everything has gone awry. And all of a sudden, when the comforts and constraints that we, or the guardrails which have allowed us to be so pleasant, who we really are then, that's the second experience. What happens when we are left to our own desires and the pressure settles in and we're sort of forced to reconcile our true self. The true mark of an athlete is not when uh, Sunday afternoon it is 60 degrees and there's no wind and everything is going well and the spirals are always perfect because the football is dry and the gloves are crisp. No, the true mark of a great athlete is when it's 35 and it's raining. And the offensive lineman has been hurt. Perhaps the best mark of a congregation or a church is not to go to a worship service or a Wednesday night fellowship, but a congregational meeting. The mark of a community is maybe not to go to a neighborhood on a Saturday afternoon when the, mow, the lawns are mowed and crisply edged, where kids are playing in the, 
in sprinklers when everything, the flowers are blooming, not to go then, but the true mark of a community is to go to the town hall meeting when the millage is up again. And in many ways, this is what the author, the God-inspired author, is doing to us in Genesis. Because when we last left our text, if you have your Bible open, you can see the text on the screen. We're in chapter 1, where creation has been made and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and the sixth day and things are so good. And so by the seventh day, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. The seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. And when he looks around, he says, that's very good. 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 My work here is done. I have nothing else to do. Not I'm going to close the door and leave it. It's I'm going to relish and glory in the wonder and beauty of what I have made, what I have created. And so that's what God does. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from the work of creating, of, of creating all that he had done. And that's the picture we get at the very beginning. And then in chapter 2, we get a, a sort of a retelling of that. And, then, and we know what happens in chapter 3, but when we get to our text this morning, in chapter 6, verse 5, Chapter 6, verse 5, the beginning of the Noah and the ark story, over 1,000 years have passed. Just like that, right? Just a couple of chapters, 1,000 years or so have passed. And we have watched as God has allowed his image bearers to take care of creation, to till the earth and grow food to steward what they've been given, to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and every living creature that moves along the ground, to be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it, to do exactly what God has called and commanded his image bearers to do. We have 1,200 years of human history that have passed. And the pressure is on. And we see what happens to humanity. And the author tells us this in such a wonderfully marvelous way. The reason we read Genesis 1 is because it's clear the author is wanting us to pick up on the same kind of rhythm. God saw in chapter 1 all that he had made. Verse 5, up on the screen or down in your Bible, you can see it. God saw all that he had made, how great the wickedness of the human race had become. And after the sixth day, on the seventh day, when God sees that his creation, the overflow of himself, the blessing is good, very good, he relishes it, he rests in it, right? He says, this is and now when the Lord looks down and he sees how great the wickedness of the human race has become, that every inclination of the human heart was evil all of the time, the response we see in God is regret, sadness. Not, 
Ah, this is so good. And in many ways, the author does this to intentionally set us up as the reader and listener to wonder, what will God do? What will God do when what he has intended to be very good and reflect him and be full of him? What will he do? How will he respond? And the story of Noah and the ark is not so much a story about Noah. In many ways, Noah is a total bystander. But it is about how God responds to a world where things fall apart. And if we can remember, in a moment of honesty, of looking in the mirror, when we're at the restaurants, or the weather is bad, or whatever, and we see our, our true self is being reflected, that will give us a sense of just how glorious and full of mercy our God is, because of how he responds to the disaster. So let's pick up our text, verse 5, chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I have regretted that I have found them or that I have made them. Just a quick note. Notice that the trouble that the human race causes impacts all of the other living things. And the reason this is important is that the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ does not just save people. It also ushers in the restoration of all creation. That's good news. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the author wants to make clear here that we don't know anything about Noah. We don't know how tall he is. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know whether this guy is good, bad, or otherwise. But the assumption we should make is that he is like everyone else that has been talked about so far. That the inclination of Noah's heart is for wickedness all of the time. And that the reason that Noah finds favor with God is not because Noah is the only one who is praying on his knees or reading the today or being nice to waitstaff. It's not that at all. The reason that Noah finds favor with God is because God chooses to find favor with Noah. We don't know anything about Noah, but God chooses him anyway. Verse 9. 
This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his God, of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Again, the assumption here is not because Noah is such a good guy, but because Noah has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that is what makes him righteous. That is what makes him walk faithfully. It is the favor of God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Reiterating the point, the pressure has gotten to them. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both of them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open if you have it, but we're going to stop our reading there. Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that chapter 7 goes on for a ways, talks about the specifics of the ark and the building. It gives some measurements. Chapter 8 talks about, or then it talks about the rain falling and the animals coming in. The story is very methodical. How long the rain falls, how many nights, how many days, where were Noah and his family during this time? It talks about how the water goes up and how much it covers. And then in chapter 8, we watch as the storyteller methodically tells us about how the water goes down. What bird goes out? What do they find? What bird goes out and what do they come back with? And the number of days it takes and how long this goes. The story is very methodical. Chapter 9 tells uh, the story of God coming and talking to Noah after the ark, in a very detailed, almost boring manner. I say boring not because the action isn't there, but because to read it the way that the author lays it out is to repeat things over and over again so that they register in our minds. But there are a couple of verses that we want to pick up on. Because most of us are familiar with how the story of the flood unfolds, right? Noah does what God commands. That's the key word related to Noah. Noah does what God commands. We're not told how long it takes. We're not told if he does it willingly, but he does what he has asked. God provides for animals to go aboard with him. And there are two things that are worth noting here before the chaos descends. Summer is winding down, so we're going to have to go back a couple of days. But how many of us have uh, ridden one of those paddle boats? Just raise your hand if you've ridden ridden a paddle boat. You've been in a paddle boat. Good rudder, not good rudder. They're bad rudders, let's be honest here, right? If you're trying to do a paddle boat and you're trying to steer, you got to like, like, you can't, hard to steer. Where's the rudder on the ark? There's no rudder on the ark. God specifically gives all of these details about rooms in the ark, about how tall they should be, where you put things, how you gather water, how you do all of these things, all of these details, the length, height, breadth, all of it, cover it with pitch, all of it is there except for how the ark is going to navigate, which is God's way of saying to Noah, I will take care of you. I've got it. 
And the second thing to note, if you have your Bible open, is verse 3 of chapter 7. Most of us learn the story of Noah, and we learn the picture of the two kinds of animals that parade in, right? There's the two elephants that go in, and then there's the two lions that go in. But there are actually seven pairs of clean animals. Now, we don't know why they're clean. We haven't learned that yet in the Bible. But if you take animals on the ark, and then you're going to sacrifice animals after you get off the ark, and you sacrifice the pair of animals that you took on to fill the earth, now what? God, even before sending the rain, has built into human history a new way to deal and know God. God changes how he reveals himself to the human race in the flood. And he says, I see that your heart is going to lead you to wickedness, lead you astray all of the time. And so I'm going to give you a way, a sacrificial way to remain in relationship with you. And you're not going to understand why I'm telling you to have seven cows and not seven pigs but they're going to be there anyway so that afterward you not only can worship with worship me for saving you but you also in that way can make our fellowship whole so even as god is preparing to destroy and really wash clean is a much better way of thinking about it. God has already built into the flood a way to bring his people through and a way to make their relationship with him right. And so again, if you have your Bible, Bibles open, you'll notice that the rain begins to fall. And in verse 16, God, at the very end, shuts him in. God shuts the door. And then for the very next verses, to the end of chapter 7, we don't hear about God again. God shuts Noah in, saving him in this rudderless ark with the opportunity to sacrifice and make clean. Afterwards, he shuts out the wickedness of the earth. And then we watch as sin is sort of left to its own devices and everything dies. And then God acts again in verse 1 of chapter 8. God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth. Now, if you tune in tonight to another look, we're going to look at this verse more. But the word wind is the same word as the Spirit, big S. You remember chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the water. Here, in chapter 8, verse 1, with the floodwaters, the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. God is not done with his world. 
In fact, God is not saying, I have some plan B. I've run out of ideas. I tried something and it didn't work, so I just got to start over. No, God's plan of blessing out of the overflow of his goodness is the same. And where there are things that are separated or brought apart or even flooded, the plan is for God to fill it. And the text does that in a marvelous way, retelling us the story of creation. And so we see God, when wickedness reaches its fever pitch, something that maybe some of us in our own day and age imagine has happened, that the wickedness of our world could not get any greater. And there is something that tempts us, or at least tempts our heart to say, we're done. We're no longer going to engage. And yet we watch as God does not turn his back, but builds in ways for his people to remain in fellowship with him and continue the work of creating. And so you and I, as image bearers of God, as those who follow our creator God, who have been given the command and the call to fill the earth, to subdue it, to to be the hands and the feet of our creator and redeemer, That work continues for us. And so when we see places where the inclination of the human heart is wickedness all the time, we do priestly work, sacrificial work to bring before our God what needs to be held up. Sacrifices, after all, are are bringing those who are far from God close to God. And the way we do that as priests in his kingdom is by holding people up in prayer, by showing them the very face of God. And when we see the world in all of its disarray of wickedness, it's not to say that it's not there. It's not to say that separation is the end of the story but to see that God has turned toward it and continues to turn toward it and bring new and calls us to do the same. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, it's a familiar story again, just like last week, and sometimes we we bring with us uh, things that we have heard, and, and yet we thank you, God, for the continued repeating of your activity in our world. That you are a faithful God. That you make promises to Noah and his family. You don't have to, but you do. You make promises to them so that they will be able to trust you and know that you are trustworthy. And you do that to us. You say that you can trust me because of my son, Jesus. And so God, as we reflect on this story, 
And we reflect on your call for us to continue to be uh, your face, your hands, your feet, your image bearers in creation. May we turn toward those places of need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.